Book Two, Chapter Five, Part One of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book Two. Constance. Chapter Five. Another Crime. Part One. One night, it was late in the afternoon of the same year, about six months after the tragedy of the Florin, Samuel Povey was wakened up by a hand on his shoulder, and a voice that whispered, Father! The thief and the liar was standing in his nightshirt by the bed. Samuel's sleepy eyes could just descry him in the thick gloom. What? What? "'questioned the father, gradually coming to consciousness. "'What are you doing there?' "'I didn't want to wake mother up,' the boy whispered. "'There's someone been throwing dirt or something at our windows, "'and has been for a long time.' "'Eh? What?' "'Samuel stared at the dim form of the thief and liar. "'The boy was tall, not in the least like a little boy, "'and yet then he seemed to his father as quite a little boy, "'a little thing in a nightshirt.' with childish gestures and childish inflections, and a childish, delicious, quaint anxiety not to disturb his mother, who had lately been deprived of sleep owing to an illness of Amy's, which had demanded nursing. His father had not so perceived him for years. In that instant, the conviction that Cyril was permanently unfit for human society finally expired in the father's mind. Time had already weakened it very considerably. The decision that, be Cyril what he might, the summer holiday must be taken as usual, had dealt it a fearful blow. And yet, though Samuel and Constance had grown so accustomed to the companionship of a criminal that they frequently lost memory of his guilt for long periods, nevertheless the convention of his leprosy had more or less persisted with Samuel until that moment, when it vanished with a strange suddenness to Samuel's conscious relief. There was a rain of pellets on the window. "'Hear that?' demanded Cyril, whispering dramatically. "'And it's been like that on my window, too.' Samuel arose. "'Go back to your room,' he ordered, in the same dramatic whisper, but not as father to son, rather as conspirator to conspirator. Constance slept. They could hear her regular breathing. Barefooted, the elderly gowned figure followed the younger— and one after the other they creaked down the two steps which separated Cyril's room from his parents. "'Shut the door quietly,' said Samuel. Cyril obeyed. And then, having lighted Cyril's gas, Samuel drew the blind, unfastened the catch of the window, and began to open it with many precautions of silence. All the sashes in that house were difficult to manage. Cyril stood close to his father, shivering without knowing that he shivered, "'astonished only that his father had not told him to get back into bed at once. "'It was, beyond doubt, the proudest hour of Cyril's career. "'In addition to the mysterious circumstances of the night, "'there was, in the situation, that thrill which always communicates itself to a father and son "'when they are afoot together upon an enterprise unsuspected by the woman "'from whom their lives have no secrets. "'Samuel put his head out of the window. "'A man was standing there.' "'That you, Samuel?' the voice came low. "'Yes,' 
replied Samuel cautiously. "'It's not Cousin Daniel, is it?' "'I want ye,' said Daniel Povey curtly. Samuel paused. "'I'll be down in a minute,' he said. Cyril at last received the command to get back into bed at once. "'Whatever's up, father?' he asked joyously. "'I don't know. I must put some things on and go and see.' He shut down the window on all the breezes that were pouring into the room. "'Now, quick, before I turn the gas out,' he admonished, his hand on the gas-tap. "'You'll tell me in the morning, won't you, father?' "'Yes,' said Mr. Povey, conquering his habitual impulse to say no. He crept back to the large bedroom to grope for clothes. When, having descended to the parlour and lighted the gas there, he opened the side door, expecting to let Cousin Daniel in, there was no sign of Cousin Daniel. Presently he saw a figure standing at the corner of the square. He whistled. Samuel had a singular faculty of whistling, the envy of his son, and Daniel beckoned to him. He nearly extinguished the gas, and then ran out hatless. He was wearing most of his clothes, except his linen collar and necktie, and the collar of his coat was turned up. Daniel advanced before him, without waiting, into the confectioner's shop opposite. Being part of the most modern building in the square, Daniel's shop was provided with the new roll-down iron shutter, by means of which you closed your establishment, with a motion similar to the winding of a large clock, instead of putting up twenty separate shutters, one by one, as in the sixteenth century. The little portal in the vast sheet of armour was ajar, and Daniel had passed into the gloom beyond. At the same moment a policeman came along on his beat, cutting off Mr. Povey from Daniel. "'Good night, officer. Brrr!' said Mr. Povey, gathering his dignity about him, and holding himself as though it were part of his normal habit to take exercise, bare-headed and collarless in St. Luke's Square on cold November nights. He behaved so, because if Daniel had desired the service of a policeman, Daniel would, of course, have spoken to this one. "'Good night, sir,' said the policeman, after recognising him. "'What time is it?' asked Samuel, bold. "'Quarter past one, sir.' The policeman, leaving Samuel at the little open door, went forward across the lamplit square, and Samuel entered his cousin's shop. Daniel Povey was standing behind the door, and as Samuel came in, he shut the door with a startling sudden movement. Save for the twinkle of gas, the shop was in darkness. It had the empty appearance which a well-managed confectioner's and baker's always has at night. The large brass scales near the flower-bins glinted, and the glass cake-stands, with scarce a tart among them, also caught the faint flare of the gas. "'What's the matter, Daniel? Anything wrong?' Samuel asked feeling boyish, as he usually did in the presence of Daniel. The well-favoured, white-haired man seized him with one hand by the shoulder, in a grip that convicted Samuel of frailty. "'Look here, Samuel,' said he, in his low, pleasant voice, somewhat altered by excitement. "'You know as my wife drinks?' He stared defiantly at Samuel. "'No,' said Samuel. "'That is, no one's ever said—' This was true— he did not know that Mrs. Daniel Povey, at the age of fifty, had definitely taken to drink. There had been rumours that she enjoyed a glass with too much gusto, but drinks meant more than that. "'She drinks,' Daniel Povey continued, "'and has done these last two years.' "'I'm very sorry to hear it,' said Samuel, tremendously shocked by this brutal rending of the cloak of decency. Always 
Everybody had feigned to Daniel, and Daniel had feigned to everybody, that his wife was as other wives. And now the man himself had torn to pieces in a moment the veil of thirty years weaving. "'And as if that were the worst,' Daniel murmured reflectively, loosening his grip. Samuel was excessively disturbed. His cousin was hinting at matters which he himself, at any rate, had never hinted at even to Constance, so abhorrent were they. Matters unutterable, which hung like clouds in the social atmosphere of the town, and of which, at rare intervals, one conveyed one's cognizance, not by words, but by something scarce perceptible as a glance, an accent. Not often is a town such as Bursley starred with such a woman as Mrs. Daniel Povey. "'But what's wrong?' Samuel asked, trying to be firm. "'And what is wrong?' he asked himself. "'What does all this mean, at after one o'clock in the morning?' "'Look here, Samuel,' Daniel recommenced, seizing his shoulder again. "'I went to Liverpool Corn Market to-day, and missed the last train. "'So I came by mail from Crewe. "'And what do I find? "'I find Dick sitting on the stairs in the dark, pretty eye naked.' "'Sitting on the stairs? Dick?' "'Aye, this is what I come home to. "'But—hold on. "'He's been in bed for a couple of days with a feverish cold.' "'caught through lying in damp sheets as his mother forgot to air. "'She brings him no supper to-night. "'He calls out. No answer. "'Then he gets up and goes downstairs to see what's happened, "'and he slips on the stairs and breaks his knee or puts it out or summit. "'Sat there hours, seemingly. "'Couldn't walk neither up nor down. "'And was your wife, was Mrs... "'Dead drunk in the parlour, Samuel. "'But the servant. "'Servant?' "'Daniel Povey laughed. "'We can't keep servants. "'They won't stay. "'You know that.' "'He did. "'Mrs. Daniel Povey's domestic methods and idiosyncrasies "'could at any rate be freely discussed, and they were. "'And what have you done?' "'Done? "'Why, I picked him up in my arms and carried him upstairs again, "'and a fine job I had, too. "'Here, come here.' "'Daniel strode impulsively across the shop. "'The counterflat was up and opened a door at the back. Samuel followed. Never before had he penetrated so far into his cousin's secrets. On the left, within the doorway, were the stairs, dark. On the right, a shut door, and in front, an open door, giving on to a yard. At the extremity of the yard, he discerned a building, vaguely lit, and naked figures strangely moving in it. "'What's that? Who's there?' he asked sharply. "'That's the bakehouse,' Daniel replied, as if surprised at such a question. "'It's one of their long nights.' Never, during the brief remainder of his life, did Samuel eat a mouthful of common bread without recalling that midnight apparition. He had lived for half a century, and thoughtlessly eaten bread as though loaves grew ready-made on trees. "'Listen,' Daniel commanded him. He cocked his ear, and caught a feeble, complaining wail from an upper floor. "'That's Dick, that is,' said Daniel Povey. It sounded more like the distress of a child than of an adventurous young man of twenty-four or so. "'But is he in pain? Haven't you fetched the doctor?' "'Not yet,' answered Daniel, with a vacant stare. Samuel gazed at him closely for a second, and Daniel seemed to him very old and helpless and pathetic, a man unequal to the situation in which he found himself.' and yet, despite the dignified snow of his age, wistfully boyish. 
Samuel thought swiftly. This has been too much for him. He's almost out of his mind. That's the explanation. Someone's got to take charge, and I must. And all the courageous resolution of his character braced itself to the crisis. Being without a collar, being in slippers, and his suspenders imperfectly fastened anyhow, these things seemed to be a part of the crisis. "'I'll just run upstairs and have a look at him,' said Samuel, in a matter-of-fact tone. Daniel did not reply. There was a glimmer at the top of the stairs. Samuel mounted, found the gas-jet, and turned it on full. A dingy, dirty, untidy passage was revealed, the very antechamber of discomfort. Guided by the moans, Samuel entered a bedroom, which was in a shameful condition of neglect, and lighted only by a nearly expired candle. Was it possible that a housemistress could so lose her self-respect? Samuel thought of his own abode, meticulously and impeccably kept, and a hard bitterness against Mrs. Daniel surged up in his soul. "'Is that you, doctor?' said a voice from the bed. The moans ceased. Samuel raised the candle. Dick lay there, his face, on which was a beard of several days' growth, distorted by anguish, sweating, his tousled brown hair was limp with sweat. "'Where the hell's the doctor?' the young man demanded brusquely. Evidently he had no curiosity about Samuel's presence. The one thing that struck him was that Samuel was not the doctor. "'He's coming, he's coming,' said Samuel soothingly. "'Well, if he isn't here soon, I shall be damn well dead,' said Dick, in feeble, resentful anger. "'I can tell you that.' Samuel deposited the candle and ran downstairs. "'I say, Daniel,' he said, roused and hot, "'this is really ridiculous. Why on earth didn't you fetch the doctor while you were waiting for me? Where's the missus?' Daniel Povey was slowly emptying grains of Indian corn out of his jacket-pocket into one of the big receptacles behind the counter on the baker's side of the shop. He had, he had provisioned himself with Indian corn as ammunition for Samuel's bedroom window. He was now returning the surplus. "'Are you going far up?' he questioned, hesitatingly. "'Why, of course!' Samuel exclaimed. "'Where's the missus?' "'Appen you'd better go and have a look at her,' said Daniel Povey. "'She's in the parlour.' He preceded Samuel to the shut-door on the right, when he opened it, the parlour appeared in full illumination. "'Here, go in,' said Daniel. Samuel went in, afraid. In a room as dishevelled and filthy as the bedroom, Mrs. Daniel Povey lay stretched awkwardly on a worn horsehair sofa, her head thrown back, her face discoloured, her eyes bulging, her mouth wet and yawning, a sight horribly offensive. Samuel was frightened. He was struck with fear and with disgust. The singing gas beat down ruthlessly on that dreadful figure, a wife and mother, the lady of a house, the centre of order, the fount of healing, the balm for worry and the refuge of distress. She was vile. Her scanty yellow-grey hair was dirty, her hollowed neck all grime, her hands abominable, her black dress in decay. She was the dishonour of her sex, her situation, and her years." She was a fouler obscenity than the inexperienced Samuel had ever conceived. And by the door stood her husband, neat, spotless, almost stately, the man who, for thirty years, had marshalled all his immense pride to suffer this woman, the jolly man who had laughed through thick and thin. 
Samuel remembered when they were married, and he remembered when, years after their marriage, she was still as pretty, artificial, coquettish, and adamantine in her caprices as a young harlot with a fool at her feet. Time and the slow wrath of God had changed her. He remained master of himself and approached her, and then stopped. "'But,' he stammered, "'Ay, Samuel, lad,' said the old man from the door, "'I doubt I've killed her. I doubt I've killed her. I took and shook her. I got her by the neck, and thought I knew where I was. I'd done it. She'll never drink brandy again. This is what it's come to.' He moved away. All Samuel's flesh tingled as a heavy wave of emotion rolled through his being. It was just as if someone had dealt him a blow unimaginably tremendous. His heart shivered as a ship shivers at the mountainous crash of the waters. He was numbed. He wanted to weep, to vomit, to die, to sink away. But a voice was whispering to him, "'You will have to go through with this. You are in charge of this.' He thought of his wife and child, innocently asleep in the cleanly pureness of his home, and he felt the roughness of his coat-collar round his neck, and the insecurity of his trousers. He passed out of the room, shutting the door, and across the yard he had a momentary glimpse of those nude nocturnal forms, unconsciously attitudinizing in the bakehouse, and down the stairs came the protests of Dick, driven by pain into a monotonous silly blasphemy. "'I'll fetch Harrop.' he said melancholically to his cousin. The doctor's house was less than fifty yards off, and the doctor had a night-bell, which, though he was a much older man than his father had been at his age, he still answered promptly. No need to bombard the doctor's premises with Indian corn. While Samuel was parleying with the doctor through a window, the question ran incessantly through his mind, "'What about telling the police?' But when, in advance of old Harrop, he returned to Daniel's shop, lo, the policeman previously encountered had returned upon his beat, and Daniel was talking to him in the little doorway. No other soul was about. Down King Street, along Wedgwood Street, up the square, towards Broom Street, nothing but gas-lamps burning with their everlasting patience, and the blind façades of shops. Only in the second story of the bank building at the top of the square a light showed mysteriously through a blind. Somebody ill there. The policeman was in a high state of nervous excitement. That had happened to him which had never happened to him before. Of the sixty policemen in Bursley, just he had been chosen by fate to fill the socket of destiny. He was startled. "'What's this? What's this, Mr. Povey?' he turned hastily to Samuel. "'What's this, as Mr. Councillor Povey is a-telling me?' "'You'll come in, Sergeant,' said Daniel. "'If I come in,' said the policeman to Samuel, "'you mun go along Wedgwood Bank, Mr. Povey, and bring my mate. He should be on Duck Bank, by rights.' It was astonishing, when once the stone had begun to roll, how quickly it ran. In half an hour Samuel had actually parted from Daniel at the police office behind the shambles, and was hurrying to rouse his wife so that she could look after Dick Povey until he might be taken off to Pyre Hill Infirmary, as old Harrop had instantly on seeing him decreed. Ah, he reflected in the turmoil of his soul, God is not mocked. That was his basic idea, God is not mocked. Daniel was a good fellow, honourable, brilliant, a figure in the world. 
But what of his licentious tongue? What of his frequenting of bars? How had he come to miss that train from Liverpool? How? For many years he, Samuel, had seen in Daniel a living refutation of the authenticity of the old Hebrew menaces. But he had been wrong after all. God is not mocked. And Samuel was aware of a revulsion in himself towards that strict codified godliness, from which, in thought, he had perhaps been slipping away. And with it all he felt, too, a certain officious self-importance, as he woke his wife, and essayed to break the news to her in a manner tactfully calm. He had assisted at the most overwhelming event ever known in the history of the town. 2. "'Your muffler. I'll get it,' said Constance. "'Cyril, run upstairs and get father's muffler. You know the drawer.' Cyril ran. It behoved everybody that morning to be prompt and efficient. "'I don't need any muffler, thank you,' said Samuel, coughing and smothering the cough. "'Oh, but Sam!' Constance protested. "'Now please don't worry me,' said Samuel, with frigid finality. "'I've got quite enough,' he did not finish." Constance sighed as her husband stepped, nervous and self-important, out of the side door into the street. It was early, not yet eight o'clock, and the shop still unopened. "'Your father couldn't wait,' Constance said to Cyril, when he had thundered down the stairs in his heavy schoolboy boots. "'Give it to me.' She went to restore the muffler to its place. The whole house was upset, and Amy still an invalid. Existence was disturbed— there vaguely seemed to be a thousand novel things to be done, and yet she could think of nothing whatever that she needed to do at that moment, so she occupied herself with the muffler. Before she reappeared, Cyril had gone to school, he who was usually a laggard. The truth was that he could no longer contain within himself a recital of the night, and in particular of the fact that he had been the first to hear the summons of the murderer on the window-pane. This imperious news had to be imparted to somebody— as a preliminary to the thrilling of the whole school, and Cyril had issued forth in search of an appreciative and worthy confidant. He was scarcely five minutes after his father. In St. Luke's Square was a crowd of quite two hundred persons, standing moveless in the November mud. The body of Mrs. Daniel Povey had already been taken to the Tiger Hotel, and young Dick Povey was on his way in a covered wagonette to Pyre Hill Infirmary on the other side of Knype. The shop of the crime was closed, and the blinds drawn at the upper windows of the house. There was absolutely nothing to be seen, not even a policeman. Nevertheless, the crowd stared with an extraordinary obstinate attentiveness at the fatal building in Bolton Terrace. Hypnotised by this face of bricks and mortar, it had apparently forgotten all earthly ties, and regardless of breakfast and a livelihood, was determined to stare at it till the house fell down, or otherwise rendered up its secret. Most of its component individuals wore neither overcoats nor collars, but were kept warm by a scarf round the neck, and by dint of forcing their fingers into the furthest inch of their pockets. Then they would slowly lift one leg after the other, starers of infirm purpose would occasionally detach themselves from the throng and sidle away, ashamed of their fickleness, but reinforcements were continually arriving and to these newcomers all that had been said in gossip had to be repeated and repeated, the same questions, the same answers, the same exclamations, the same proverbial philosophy. 
The same prophecies recurred in all parts of the square with an uncanny iterance. Well-dressed men spoke to mere professional loiterers for this unparalleled and glorious sensation, whose uniqueness grew every instant more impressive, brought out the essential brotherhood of mankind. All had a peculiar feeling that the day was neither Sunday nor weekday, but some eighth day of the week. Yet in the St. Luke's covered market close by, the stall-keepers were preparing their stalls just as though it were a Saturday, just as though a town councillor had not murdered his wife, at last. It was stated, and restated infinitely, that the povey baking had been taken over by Brindley, the second-best baker and confectioner, who had a stall in the market, and it was asserted as a philosophical truth, and reasserted infinitely, that there would have been no sense in wasting good food. Samuel's emergence stirred the multitude, but Samuel passed up the square with a rapt expression. He might have been under an illusion, caused by the extreme gravity of his preoccupations, that he was crossing a deserted square. He hurried past the bank and down the Turnhill Road to the private residence of young Lawton, son of the deceased lawyer Lawton. Young Lawton followed his father's profession— he was, as his father had been, the most successful solicitor in the town, though reputed by his learned rivals to be a fool. But the custom of calling men by their occupations had died out with horse-cars. Samuel caught young Lawton at his breakfast, and presently drove with him in the Lawton buggy to the police-station, where their arrival electrified a crowd as large as that in St. Luke's Square. Later they drove together to Hanbridge, informally to brief a barrister, and Samuel, not permitted to be present at the first part of the interview between the solicitor and the barrister, was humbled before the pomposity of legal etiquette. It seemed to Samuel a game. The whole rigmarole of police and police cells and formalities seemed insincere. His cousin's case was not like any other case, and though formalities might be necessary, it was rather absurd to pretend that it was like any other case— in what manner it differed from other cases samuel did not analytically inquire he thought young lawton was self-important and daniel too humble in the colloquy of these two and he endeavoured to indicate by the dignity of his own demeanour that in his opinion the proper relative's tones had not been set he could not understand daniel's attitude for he lacked imagination to realise what daniel had been through after all daniel was not a murderer his wife's death was due to accident, was simply a mishap. But in the crowded and stinking courtroom of the town hall, Samuel began to feel qualms. It occurred that the stipendiary magistrate was sitting that morning at Bursley. He sat alone, as not one of the borough justices cared to occupy the bench while a town councillor was in the dock. The stipendiary, recently appointed, was a young man from the southern part of the county, and a town councillor of Bursley was no more to him than a petty tradesman to a man of fashion. He was youthfully enthusiastic for the majesty and the impartiality of English justice, and behaved as though the entire responsibility for the safety of that vast fabric rested on his shoulders. He and the barrister from Hanbridge had a historic quarrel at Cambridge, and their behaviour to each other was a lesson to the vulgar in the art of chill and consummate politeness. Young Lawton, having been to Oxford, secretly scorned the pair of them, but as he had engaged counsel, he, of course, was precluded from adding to the eloquence which chagrined him. These three were the aristocracy of the courtroom. They knew it. Samuel Povey knew it. 
Everybody knew it and felt it. The barrister brought an unexceptionable zeal to the performance of his duties. He referred, in suitable terms, to Daniel's character and high position in the town, but nothing could hide the fact that for him, too, his client was a petty tradesman accused of simple murder. Naturally, the stipendiary was bound to show that before the law all men are equal, the town councillor and the common tippler. He succeeded. The policeman gave his evidence, and the inspector swore to what Daniel Povey had said when charged. The hearing proceeded so smoothly and quickly that it seemed naught but an empty right, with Daniel as a lay figure in it. The stipendiary achieved marvellously the illusion that to him a murder by a town councillor in St. Luke's Square was quite an everyday matter. Bail was inconceivable, and the barrister, being unable to suggest any reason why the stipendiary should grant a remand—indeed there was no reason—Daniel Povey was committed to the Stafford Assizes for trial. The stipendiary instantly turned to the consideration of an alleged offence against the Factory Acts by a large local firm of potters. The young magistrate had mistaken his vocation. With his steely calm, with his imperturbable detachment from weak humanity, he ought to have been a general of the Order of Jesuits. Daniel was removed. He did not go. He was removed by two bareheaded constables. Samuel wanted to have speech with him, and could not. And later Samuel stood in the porch of the town hall, and Daniel appeared out of a corridor, still in the keeping of two policemen, helmeted now, and down below at the bottom of the broad flight of steps, up which passed dancers on the nights of subscription balls, was a dense crowd, held at bay by other policemen, and beyond the crowd a black van, and Daniel, to his cousin a sort of Christ between thieves, was hurried past the privileged loafers in the corridor, and down the broad steps. A murmuring wave agitated the crowd. Unkempt idlers and ne'er-do-wells in corduroy leapt up like tigers in the air, and the policemen fought them back furiously, and Daniel and his guardians shot through the little living lane. Quick! Quick! For the captive is more sacred even than a messiah. The law has him in charge, and like a feat of prestidigitation, Daniel disappeared into the blackness of the van. A door slammed loudly, triumphantly, and a whip cracked. The crowd had been balked. It was though the crowd had yelled for Daniel's blood and bones, and the faithful constables had saved him from their lust. Yet Samuel had qualms. He had a sickness in the stomach. The aged superintendent of police walked by with the aged rector. The rector was Daniel's friend. Never before had the rector spoken to the nonconformist Samuel, but now he spoke to him. He squeezed his hand. "'Ah, Mr. Povey,' he ejaculated grievously. I, "'I'm afraid it's serious,' Samuel stammered. He hated to admit that it was serious, but the words came out of his mouth. He looked at the superintendent of police, expecting the superintendent to assure him that it was not serious, but the superintendent only raised his small, white-bearded chin, saying nothing. The rector shook his head and shook a senile tear out of his eye. After another chat with young Lawton, Samuel, on behalf of Daniel, dropped his pose of the righteous man to whom a mere mishap has occurred, and who is determined, with the lofty pride of innocence, to indulge all the whims of the law, to be more royalist than the king. He perceived that the law must be fought with its own weapons, that no advantage must be surrendered, and every possible advantage seized. He was truly astonished at himself 
that such a pose had ever been adopted. His eyes were opened. He saw things as they were. He returned home through a square that was more interested than ever in the façade of his cousin's house. People were beginning to come from Hambridge, Knype, Longshaw, Turnhill, and villages such as Moorthorne to gaze at that façade, and the fourth edition of the signal, containing a full report of what the stipendiary and the barrister had said to each other, was being cried. In his shop he found customers as absorbed in the trivialities of purchase as though nothing whatever had happened. He was shocked. He resented their callousness. "'I'm too busy now,' he said curtly to one who accosted him. "'Sam!' his wife called him in a low voice. She was standing behind the till. "'What is it?' He was ready to crush, and especially to crush, indiscreet babble in his shop. He thought she was going to vent her womanly curiosity at once. "'Mr. Huntbatch is waiting for you in the parlour, said Constance. "'Mr. Huntbatch?' "'Yes, from Longshaw,' she whispered. "'It's Mrs. Povey's cousin. "'He's come to see about the funeral and so on. "'The, the inquest, I suppose.' Samuel paused. "'Oh, has he?' said he defiantly. "'Well, I'll see him. "'If he wants to see me, I'll see him.' That evening Constance learned all that was in his mind of bitterness against the memory of the dead woman whose failings had brought Daniel Povey to Stafford Jail, and Dick to the Pyehill Infirmary. Again and again in the ensuing days he referred to the state of foul discomfort which he had discovered in Daniel's house. He nursed a feud against all her relatives, and when, after the inquest at which he gave evidence, full of resentment, she was buried, he vented an angry sigh of relief, and said, "'Well, she's out of the way.' Thenceforward he had a mission, religious in its solemn intensity, to defend and save Daniel." He took the enterprise upon himself, spending the whole of himself upon it, to the neglect of his business and the scorn of his health. He lived solely for Daniel's trial, pouring out money in preparation for it. He thought and spoke of nothing else. The affair was his one preoccupation, and as the weeks passed by he became more and more sure of success, more and more sure that he would return with Daniel to Bursley in triumph after the assize. He was convinced of the impossibility that anything should happen to Daniel. The circumstances were too clear, too overwhelmingly in Daniel's favour. When Brindley, the second-best baker and confectioner, made an offer for Daniel's business as a going concern, he was indignant at first. Then Constance and the lawyer and Daniel, whom he saw on every permitted occasion, between them persuaded him that if some arrangement was not made, and made quickly, the business would lose all its value, and he consented, on Daniel's behalf, to a temporary agreement, under which Brindley should reopen the shop and manage it, on certain terms, until Daniel regained his freedom towards the end of January. He would not listen to Daniel's plaintive insistence that he would never care to be seen in Bursley again. He pooh-poohed it. He protested furiously that the whole town was seething with sympathy for Daniel, and this was true. He became Daniel's defending angel, rescuing Daniel from Daniel's own weakness and apathy. He became, indeed, Daniel. One morning the shop shutter was wound up, and Brindley, inflated with the importance of controlling two establishments, strutted in and out under the sign of Daniel Povey and traffic in bread and cakes and flour was resumed. Apparently the sea of time had risen and covered Daniel, and all that was his, for his wife was under earth, 
and Dick lingered at Pyrehill, unable to stand, and Daniel was locked away. Apparently, in the regular flow of life of the square, Daniel was forgotten. But not in Samuel Povey's heart was he forgotten. There, before an altar erected to the martyr, the sacred flame of a new faith burned with fierce consistency. Samuel, in his greying middle age, had inherited the eternal youth of the Apostle. End of chapter 5 Part 1